With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Welcome everyone to Kids A to Z with Dr. T. I am your host, Teresa Signorelli, and we are bringing you information about the five areas of child development, and that includes physical development, intellectual, social, emotional, emotional, and moral development, and our mission is to empower our parents so their children can thrive. Well, today we have a Brains in Toyland segment, and we'll be talking about play skills in children um, and a little bit about especially pretend play skills. And we call the show Being Serious About Play because it truly is a really important medium for learning and for children to develop. So I have asked Dr. Dana Patalia to join us today. She is a speech-language pathologist and an assistant professor at Adelphi University in New York, and she's here with a, a lot of information. And actually, before I welcome Dana, I just want to mention she and I did our doctoral program together, so um, I thought it would be fair to disclose that, but I've, I've known Dana for a good long while now, and I've just always admired her work and being with her and the information she had, so that's why I wanted to ask her to come on. So with that, Dana, are you there? Welcome. I am here. Thanks so much. I'm glad to be here. And great, Teresa, great. the feeling is mutual. So I'm <laughs> honored to have been here, and it, it's been it's been a long and exciting journey. And here we are. And tomorrow is you know there's more to come. <laughs> yep, exactly, exactly. And there there is a lot actually for us to cover. When Dana and I were preparing this, we just realized there's just so much information, and so um, we can't include everything that we really wanted to talk about today. So uh, we'll give you some of that today. But before we get into play skills and play development. Dana, why don't you tell us a little bit about, just briefly, who you are and, and what you do and, and why you're the authority that we would want to have here. Great. Well, thank you so much. Um, I've been a licensed speech-language pathologist since 2001, and prior to then I was a, and still am, um, these are overlapping credentials, a teacher of the speech and hearing handicapped in New York State. I'm presently working at Adelphi University, where I'm an assistant professor in the Department of Communication Sciences and Disorders. And I further hold a consultancy at the Genesis Eden 2 programs for individuals with autism spectrum disorders, as well as maintain a small private practice. Um, a lot of what I do is based on analysis of behavior, um, but that behavior as a speech-language pathologist includes play. Um, and so that's why this issue is a matter of, of seriousness for our show today, because a lot of times when we're talking about um, what's going right and maybe what's not in child development, we forget about things that are so important like children playing. Right, right. So what? Um, let's talk about what play is. Um, maybe give okay. a, a definition to parents of, um, of what it is and so they understand why it's so important and why we really want to be able to nurture it in, in the best pop- possible way. Sure. So in children, play is essentially any kind of spontaneous activity that is essentially intrinsically motivating. When we think about adult lives, we think about activities such as golf and tennis and going to the gym or going to the theater. This is essentially adult form of play, and it's wreck and leisure. Um, But this play in the adult form begins as early as grabbing and shaking a rattle for an infant. So there is a trajectory, and it starts very, very early on. Right. And we talked about, we've mentioned um, that it is important, but let's reiterate why. Why is it so important? Well, you know, when we think about play and children, children is essentially a represent, uh, I'm sorry, play is essentially a representation of the child's thoughts. Um, When we observe children play, we are observing their reality, and it's therefore symbolic. When we think about um, later communication, that stems from a child's experiences and explorations, and therefore play is a prerequisite for meaningful and effective communication with others. Okay. And so um, let's talk about why we would want to nurture then play skills in children a little bit more. 
Well, when we think about flight, I mean, there are so many different definitions, which we'll talk about. Um, but there is a tremendous overlap in play behaviors, such as, for example, feeding a doll, and language behaviors, such as saying the word doll. And there is a substantial amount of development going on between the two. At the most basic level, when we think about play, it's about learning that objects exist in the world and how a child can use them in a fun way. And then this later advances to using them in a way that represents their understanding of the world. So if we go back to the feeding example, um, when a child picks up a bottle and feeds the baby, that's an example of their own experiences. And it later morphs into social skills such as playing house with other peers, let's say, in a preschool classroom. Specific to language, of course, um, there are multiple skills involved, ranging from vocabulary to problem-solving and social skills. Um, my interdisciplinary colleagues would also attest to the fact that it's not just about language. Play also involves cognition, motor development, and sensory development. And I'm sure I'm missing a few. <laughs> yeah, right, the social, I think the social-emotional aspect where you can um, yeah, exactly. think, act out um, emotions you may be feeling, um, and that would probably be lead into, one might argue, even moral development where you can um, practice and act out um, those types of decisions. Um, oh, sure. Yeah, so let's... One of the things we wanted to focus on today was a more sophisticated type of play called pretend play. So can you expand on that a little bit so our audience has a picture of, of what we mean when we say pretend play and maybe maybe give us some examples? Yeah, absolutely. So pretend play is also frequently referred to as symbolic play, um, although they're not exactly the same thing. And I'm going to delineate them, and then you'll understand why they're frequently um, terms used interchangeably. When we think about pretend play, it is generally a form of activity where the child correlates with a physical act, and there's a, some sort of material or um, an object or an actor involved, such as if we go back to the example of feeding a baby. Um, even within the concept so by, of pretend so play... Oh, let me just jump in there for a second. So yeah, that physical act would be feeding the baby, and the material would be the actual doll and maybe the bottle that they're holding. Exactly, exactly. Okay. Um, and even with this concept of pretend play, there is a hierarchy um, essentially terminating with this idea of symbolic play. So even though pr symbolic play falls within pretend play, Pretend play is really the more rudimentary, um, and symbolic play later involves using unrelated objects as tools within a theme. So, for example, uh, setting up blocks to create a town or putting, uh, let's say, a little model toy, such as like a Dora the Explorer, on a spoon and taking her on a boat ride in a play scene involving maybe fishing or a bottle of water, uh, a, a body of water. These are examples of, yes, pretend play, but more specifically symbolic play. Okay, so when you say a hierarchy, there are steps, and, and the more simple steps, like in pretend play where you mentioned the feeding of the baby, the child isn't actually a mom or a dad, but they're pretending to be, and they're feeding a doll that looks like a real baby with a, an, with a, a toy bottle versus that more abstract, more difficult, higher-level play and, and symbolic play where you're having... Um, you mentioned blocks representing maybe buildings in a town or a spoon representing a boat um, where they're still pretending but um, at a higher level. Yes, absolutely. Okay, great. Great. And we're going to talk a little bit about how and when that all develops so parents can have a nice idea. Um, okay. But um, before we jump into all those that developmental sequence, what is it something as a professional you found that parents are often unaware of in regard to play skills, or what are what are they often surprised to learn regarding play when you talk with them? Maybe is a way to put it as well. Right, right. Um, well, actually, I have two points here that I'd like to speak to. First of all, we have to think about the fact that our homes and our lives are flooded with technology, um, and I'm not trying to say 
anything negatively about that, and this is not a judgmental statement. Um, we live in the digital age, and there's easy access of devices, tablets, computers, phones are really computers, you know, things of that nature. I think parents, and, and myself, by the way, <laughs> as a parent is included in this, sometimes account for time on a tablet or on a computer as play. And while these skills are certainly important, given that our children are digital natives, they do not substitute for old-fashioned old play on the floor that involves getting dirty um, and getting low to the ground. So that's my first point. My second point that I think parents are not aware of is that only later developing children can actually play independently for extended amounts of time. Um, that said, setting up a child with a toy, even if it's a new toy or a present, which is always very, very exciting and thrilling to a child, realistically only buys a parent three to five minutes to, let's say, get dinner started or get a child, another <laughs> child off to another um, sports event or something to that effect. So, um, again, as a parent, I'm guilty of that um, because we all live very, very busy lives. But I just wanted to say that children do not play for extended amounts of time, and sometimes we think that they can um, because, let's say, they have a new toy, and that's not necessarily true. It's an engaging process, and it requires um, people, if you will. Yeah, people interacting. Um, I think that's mm -hmm. a really important point. And, I, I, and for those who have listened to the show for a while, I've, I have such mixed emotions about technology. It is wonderful. But it could also be not so wonderful, um, and that yes, that um, not to count that time on that tablet or that that digital electronic item as play and getting down on the ground, rolling around, getting dirty, moving, feeling, um, et cetera, is is so important, and especially that interaction um, with a parent who can help guide. I think um, we we don't have a plan to talk about it here, but. Um, uh, being on the floor, there's that um, play approach called DIR floor time. I've had um, another speech pathologist on a few weeks ago talking mm -hmm. about that and really letting the child lead. But having that adult there c to guide them and help them make it to that next level of sophistication is important. Um, and maybe we can revisit that another time. But um, sure. let's let's start talking about the milestones, so those behaviors that we would want to see as children grow in terms of their play skills. What do we want to see at particular ages or age ranges? And maybe, Dana, as you talk about that, suggest an activity or two that a parent could do to foster skills at that age. Okay, great. Well, there are lots of different ways that researchers and clinicians have talked about play. So I am sticking to one just for purposes of clarity, but again, I'm open to discussion about, you know, overlap and uh, shared and uh, diverse perspectives on play. So Carol Westby developed a play scale, essentially dividing play into 10 specific stages. Um, these stages are estimated, and they are um, assumed to begin at approximately nine months of age. I do want the, the audience to know that um, these stages are not hard and fast. They also can stand to start and end very quickly and at times can overlap, and that's all okay. So just to let you know, basically what I'm going to be doing is talking about stages and then talking about how um, you know, the, the, the lines are gray in terms of where they start and stop. Right. So the first stage, which is um, called formally stage one, begins at approximately nine months of age and ends at approximately 12 months, so the child's first birthday. And the child is basically demonstrating means and behaviors. Um, quite simply, for an example, a, a behavior might look like a child pulling on a string toy or maybe activating a pop-up toy, let's say, while sitting on a high chair and um, having the tray top on the high chair while even eating. So the child's already multitasking at stage one. <laughs> in stage two, I know, right? Uh, we're right. beginning early. Um, in stage two, which is approximately 13 to 17 months, children are actually exploring toys purposefully. 
this is when you start to see a child engage in trial and error behavior. So it's almost like they're doing their own little research experiments. Um, a child might stack up a few toys and wait to see how long it takes before they fall down. Um, if they're unsuccessful at whatever they're doing, which can include knocking down a tower, a child will seek out attention of an adult for, an assist- for assistance. Then moving right along in the trajectory, we have stage three, which is 17 to 19 months of age, where children will actually use their own body and tools. Again, we talked about that earlier. Um, A child may pretend to go to sleep. They may pretend to brush their hair. They may pretend to eat from a spoon. This is also sometimes called auto-symbolic play. Um, They might demonstrate the use of objects as tools, so maybe use of a stick as a push toy, um, and they might um, use other tools to, as shovels, let's say, to find hidden tools. So you start seeing um, some more agent type of activity happening at this point. Okay, so just to recap what we have there, we start to see the real play um, emerging around 9 to 12 months, and you had mentioned this was means end, so children are just pulling a string toy or hitting a button and something pops up. Um, but there's there's not a lot of purpose. But once they start to get into stage two, that 13 to 17 month age range, you talked about them being little explorers and starting to experiment um, with a trial and error um, type of um, approach. Um, You'd mentioned knocking down blocks and seeing how many they could put together before something fell. And then around 17 to 19 months, again, these are all gray range, uh, gray areas and ranges. Stage three, we start to see, you'd mentioned auto-symbolic play. So auto meaning to themselves where they are pretending themselves to be sleeping or pretending to eat um, or pretending to sleep or do something like that, but it, it stays to themselves. Um, and that's mm-hmm. what you meant by auto-symbolic? Okay. And then yeah. what about what about next? So that was stage three. What do we see uh, around stage four? Okay. So stage four is estimated to happen between 19 and 22 months of age. So, again, I mean, if we look at these stages realistically, we're looking at three-month windows, right? So mm-hmm. there may be, again, some overlap. You know, this may happen earlier. Something may happen later. Um, the first mention of symbolic play starts at approximately stage four or the first symbolic play act in which um, the actual play activities of a child will extend beyond um, her physical self. Um, If we return to that doll feeding example, the child may now feed himself, then the doll, then the caretaker. So -hmm. during this stage, the child will also be observed maybe combining two toys and pretend activities, such as putting a spoon in a pot and mixing soup an example, a personal example I'd like to share here is um, at one point when my, my own son was 20 months of age, he was sitting on his uh, little picnic table, and I was giving him a snack, and he had just gotten a new dinosaur. And he actually set up his dinosaur next to him and went and got a, another doll and gave each of them one of his cookies and set up. <laughs> a pretend play scene where he was actually having his snack and sharing with others. And that yeah, happened at around stage four. Okay. So it around, was very cute. I had to take pictures. Yeah, that is very cute. <laughs> <laughs> so that's, we, that's an, those are behaviors we'd expect around 19 to 22 months grossly. And so what, yeah. what might we expect at the next stage, stage five, and what would that okay. month age range be? So now let's think about this a little bit. Stage five is estimated to be halfway through the play stages, and it's mm-hmm. at 24 months of age or two years old, colloquially, right. right? If we think about this like just pragmatically. Play begins to simulate or represent daily experiences. So <laughs> a child screaming at, let's say, his Sesame Street characters, you're in big trouble, Elmo, um, <laughs> would be an example <laughs> of representing daily experiences or, you know, if you have a child that goes to preschool at that time, in that time range, you might see the child coming home and mimicking something that they may have observed in school, whether it's a preferred behavior or a not preferred behavior. (laughs) Um, While expanding 
let's say, the play repertoire, it's important. We have to think about um, even though these things are happening and the distance between when they actually are observed and the child is actually reenacting is increasing in time, um, we should also note that these interactions are still very short and they don't necessarily have extended sequences. So Johnny could come home from school and say, uh, Mommy, Gabby, uh, uh, smelled the flower, and then Johnny's already having his chocolate pudding. Like, he forgot about it already, you know? Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so during these stages, for example, another example would be, let's say, block play involving not just stacking up the blocks, as I had explained earlier, but now getting the blocks, stocking stacking the blocks, knocking them down, and repeating the sequence a few times. So it's still short, but it's becoming more sophisticated. Right, right. Okay. okay. How about the next stage? So stage six is estimated to be at approximately two and a half years of age, um, where now these simulations, if you will, or these uh, representations of the child's life include those events that are less equins, uh, less frequent, although meaningful. So, for example, visiting a doctor, visiting a favorite friend, or maybe pretending to visit an out-of-town relative, going grocery shopping. Um, for this stage, realistic props are required here. So, for example, um, a shopping cart to pretend that the child is grocery shopping. And roles between the interactive partners and these scenes shift very quickly. Um, sometimes more quickly than a parent realizes. So you might have this super engaging, attentive parent that is making a pizza and suddenly um, their child is off uh, building a tunnel. <laughs> right. Sitting there making a pizza, not knowing what happened. You know? Right. <laughs> but that that's okay. And that's part of what totally. we mentioned a little bit earlier about the parent following the child's lead. Um, that they should be playing on a, a level that's developmentally appropriate for them, um, but that parent can be there to guide them and cue them to maybe do something a little bit more sophisticated. Um, and, and over time, as I guess we'll talk about, we'll see those um, those scenes shift um, a little more slowly and maybe there are more steps to that. So I guess just to recap around um, that stage four, around 19 to 22 months, we're starting to see that symbolic play where they're not just doing these pretend actions on themselves, they're carrying those over to other dolls and other caretakers. And then they're starting around two years of age in stage five to represent um, daily experiences, so talking to their doll or about um, going to the doctor maybe, or maybe the doll <laughs> didn't clean up their room, so they scold them or something like the that. The doll is in very big trouble, yes. The doll is in very <laughs> big trouble. Um, but that's a really wonderful um, way to see how they're communicating and what they're understanding and what resonates with them in terms of what happens in their lives. So we'll, um, I'm looking forward to revisiting these stages, talking with um a developmental psychologist who can talk about um, emotional development a little more there, too. Oh, for sure. Oh, for uh, sure. Yeah. Yeah. But from our perspective, language is always um, our focus um, for us as speech pathologists. Um, and then you had spoken about stage five at around two and a half years of age, where they're starting to include that um, symbolic play of occurrences that are less frequent. Um, so, right, going to the doctor or maybe going to the movies or something, um, visiting a farm, something um, less frequent, but that those, I'm sorry, those scenes are still short and they may shift quickly. Um, so, as they approach that three-year skill level, I guess that's stage seven now, what would we say? Mm-hmm. So, we have to think about this in terms of, you know, I, I always like to describe this as, at this point, we just get to see more. Okay, so that's the short answer, but the reality of it is is that at three years of age, we're at stage seven, the child continues to do everything that he's been doing up until this point. The shift, however, is in play being now a sequence of events rather than one isolated event with maybe a few subcomponents. So an example to highlight this would be let's revisit the uh, use of the spoon, as mentioned earlier, for feeding or mixing a pot. In this stage... Uh, The child may obtain all of the necessary supplies, combine ingredients, mix a cake, put it in the oven to bake it, take it out of the oven, blow on it as if to cool it, 
cut the cake, serve the cake, maybe sing happy birthday, which the happy birthday scene would be like its own play set in a previous mm-hmm. stage. Um, expressing the pleasure of tasting the cake, um, all of that would be seen in stage seven. Um, an example also that I, I wanted to share personally, I, I interjected earlier an example about uh, making a pizza. Um, my my son is going through a pizza making phase right now, and <laughs> what he will do, he will do all of these things to make a cake, and then he will move on to make a pizza. And the funny part about this is that he does have a play kitchen set, and his pizza items are too large for the kitchen set. But he will still play, and I will revisit this exact point later. So what he will do is he'll make his pizza, he'll put it in the pizza box, and then put it under the coffee table as if he's baking it mm-hmm. because he's still in the kitchen scene. So he's made a cake, then he's made a pizza, um, where in previous stages these events are isolated. Right. Okay. Right. Okay. And then um, we move on. And I on. love the use of the. Um, and I just love his that his symbolic play, his ability to use the. I think. What did you say? The coffee table as an oven. Yeah. Yeah. yeah it's actually That's great. I I would love to take credit for that, but he did that on his own. <laughs> <laughs> okay. You know, he just saw something larger than the pizza box and said, "Up oh, there's the oven." You know. Right. So that actually could have been an example if you see your child struggling that their pizza won't fit in their play oven, a parent could suggest, hey, <laughs> we can use the coffee table as an oven. So that could be a way a parent could cue a child to a more sophisticated way of play, but your little man did it all on his own, so good for him. Yeah, <laughs> yeah well, thank you. Very good. But the point is, absolutely, I mean, you could use anything. You could have, you know, another parent could use if they have a tent, you know, and say, "Oh, that's mm-hmm. the oven. It doesn't a tent mm-hmm. doesn't always have to be a tent when you're playing, right? You know, yeah. It could be a hungry yeah, monster. It could be, you know, a friendly monster. It could be an oven. It doesn't matter, right? That's what's exciting so that's, about play. Yeah, that I'm just thinking of that mental flexibility of having um, something stand for something else that it isn't really what it is. It's a symbol. So that tent could be a, a symbol for an oven, or that. That coffee table could be a symbol for an oven or a bed or a um, a boat, whatever you want it to be. But having that mental flexibility um, was a really wonderful skill and a really wonderful intellectual exercise. It's it's using your mental muscle, using your brain in, in different ways, which is nice. Yeah, um, absolutely. Uh, and really, right, so stage that, eight. Oh, go ahead. Mm-hmm. I'm sorry. I was just going to say Go stage ahead. eight again. I keep using that word more. Stage eight is more of the same, where the child becomes more creative and more symbolic. Um, mm-hmm. The child may use, this really leads exactly into what we were just saying. We kind of skipped ahead, I guess, or I skipped ahead. The child begins to use non traditional items to re- represent other items. So blocks or crayons may be lined up to represent a railroad track or some sort of an enclosure of some kind. Or if crayons are not available at that time, they might use um, stems from a bouquet of flowers. Or I'm just trying to think of anything else. Or daddy's highlighters or, you know, mm-hmm. something of that effect. Mm-hmm. If a child wants to create a scene, he or she will find an object that may or may not be a, a, a true representation. But, again, mm-hmm. it goes back to that mental flexibility, as you say. Yeah. And this is, you say, stage eight around that three to three-and-a-half-year skill level you'd, uh, age range, mm-hmm. you'd say? Okay, yeah. great. Um, so what would we get maybe at the next age range? Maybe, what is it, three-and-a-half to four years in stage nine? Yeah. So we have three and a half to four years at stage nine. And, you know, at stage 10, it's approximately five years, but it it might be four and a half, you know. Mm -hmm. Um, So just going back to stage nine, the child can demonstrate an ability to problem solve events that maybe they've never experienced before. So if we think about what we've already talked about, and we talked about, you know, just learning about object function, and we've talked about the child's repeating events, in different contexts that they've experienced or, you know, um, reenacting even lesser frequent but meaningful events. Now we see a child planning ahead. Uh, You might actually hear a child say words such as, what would happen if, or I hope, um, which if we think about this from a metalinguistic perspective is is very advanced. and so by metalinguistic, you mean just in terms of their language skills? Yeah, just 
thinking about and talking about language, you know, and mm-hmm. talking about um, their a child's own abilities or a child's own experimentation, if you will. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, again, going back to the what would happen if example, what would happen if we changed the doll's clothes? Or what would happen if Daniel Tiger went in the snow in his bathing suit? Mm-hmm. Oh, that's silly. You know, and you'll hear children commenting. Right. Um, they might make silly creations. Um, so what would happen if my dolly met a rhinoceros? That would be so funny. So what would they? What they're doing is they, in this example, a child might be taking their doll experiences with their maybe zoo experiences and combining them. Right. Okay. Right. Um, maybe using dolls as puppets in these play scenes. You know, you you see a lot of that kind of behavior where they'll take one scene and and interject it with another. So a tiger might be a fireman and might be saving all the animals at the zoo and then going to fly a plane. <laughs> and all of this is very, very, very silly to a child. Like, they know it's silly, which is really the funny part, by the way. Right. Right. You know. And then uh, finally, when we move on to stage five, um, children demonstrate not only the need for objects but other peers. I'd like to also interject here and say that this is not the first need for peers. It's just that when we formalize some sort of a way to think about play, we think about it as terminating with a need for peers. Um, Mm -hmm. But I can assure you that in previous stages, children certainly are seeking out peers. And what happens, too, is that when children are granted more and more access to peers that are appropriate for them and that have similar interests, they seek out less and less access for parents, which is completely appropriate. You know, it's sometimes heartbreaking for the parent, <laughs> um, but it, it's it's wonderful for the child. So just going back to stage five, children demonstrate the need not only for objects but for other peers, as I said, and they will coordinate more than one event at a time. So put in a, a scenario with a peer, they might say, they might have this little discussion and say, let's play school, I'll do my homework, you be the teacher, and then we'll go to the pizza store and I'll get pizza and you get ice cream. Um, They're very highly imaginative. Um, And this is when you start to see that they're able to engage in cooperative play and take turns seamlessly. And they're not announcing that they're taking turns, but they are taking turns. Mm -hmm. So one person does one action, another child does another action, and they're often, uh, the actions are related. Exactly. And they alternate. You know, Mm -hmm. they alternate. Okay. And so um, I guess when we're thinking about pretend play and why it's so important, um, can we talk a little bit about what what the skills are really that we're that we're honing here, that we're we are fine tuning here? Yeah. Well, you know, we already defined play in terms of just any kind of intrinsically motivating activity for a child. But the issue here is that play is essentially a child's mission in life. It's not just that it's fun, but it's what they are driven to do. Children will play. Um, And it has a major, major influence on language development. And as we talked about earlier, other um, interdisciplinary representatives, if you will, so child psychologists and OTs and PTs and um, art therapists and music therapists and will, will also say that, um, play has a major influence on their language in all of those domains, and um, language is one of those. So, right. So, in, ad- in addition to let, to just to clarify just a little bit, so in addition to language, there's the motor, the fine and gross motor or muscle movements, um, sensory development. So, what they're seeing, feeling, hearing, touching, how they're moving through space. Um, that social emotional development. You know, being able to act out and get in touch with their emotions uh, and learn how to interact and navigate situations with their peers and adults um, and make decisions that all happens through play. Yeah, that all happens through play. Um, and again, as we had mentioned, as speech pathologists, our big focus and the I guess the bigger focus for this talk is play's impact on language and communication. 
Um, but yeah, it's it's really it's across the board. It helps everything. I often say that play is their job. It's it's, it's their oh, job. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> I mean, really, it's it's a synergistic process if you think about it, right? I mean, mm-hmm. um, you know, a child is not only showing you his or her representation of the world, but exploring it. So it, it's not. It's not always just a direct repetition of what they see, but it's a repetition and an expansion of yeah. what they see, which is so yeah. exciting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's um, it's always changing and, and dynamic. Um, mm-hmm. And it is fun. <laughs> it is if fun. If it's not fun, um, it's not play. By definition, right, right. But it's <laughs> it's it's not it's not just recreation to pass the time. But there's really hard work. Uh, the most important, honestly, the most important work of their lives is going on now. These are the that birth to five range is absolutely the most critical time, and it's setting the foundation and the stage for the rest of their lives. So that's why, oh, yeah, I think talking yeah, about like where most, yeah, where most of. Um, these your skills are are developed um is so important um yeah i I mean i always oh go ahead no i'm sorry what i was about to say is i always joke around and say when when my son is um really in it (laughs) when he's really like involved in maybe something new or some kind of new placing that he's creating he's actually almost breaking a sweat you know (laughs) i mean it's, it's very serious business this yeah. play. It it is. It is. That's that's why um when I was thinking of a title for our talk it was the seriousness of play. That, yeah. It oh, is, it's it is very serious. serious stuff. <laughs> so, um so since it is so serious and it is so important, what is it that parents or other caregivers caregivers can do to foster really good play skills in kids? Okay, well, the first thing is understanding why play is so important, which I think at this point we kind of have already (laughs) um, stated multiple times. (laughs) Yeah. But you know what? It is really, really hard. You know, when you're trying to balance, let's say, a full work schedule, a healthy home life, um, maybe you have multiple children at home, um, you know, we all have um, a lot on our plates. So there seems to be less and less time to play in real life. Um, make time. It's really important. So play should be a priority. Um, another um, suggestion that I can help to, uh, you know, to provide to parents is to lead by example. And I understand that you have already kind of had a show about this, but mm-hmm. not only demonstrate, but interact with your child. Take turns. Show emotion. Use the entire body. Change your intonation to demonstrate changes in character and emotion. Be dramatic. It's hard. You know, adults are very serious. We can be very, very boring. Um, But sometimes play is therapeutic for adults. Um, And it's really healthy to lead by example. Another compromise, kind of going back to one of the first comments I made, is, um, you know, kids love to watch videos of themselves. Um, and what what parents can do is videotape their children playing and show them those videos. And that sometimes is a good compromise between that balance, the trade-off between technology and face-to-face interaction. And mm-hmm. that's, that's a note that, I mean, there is a wide body of literature on video modeling, but personally I can tell you that um, when I have shown my son videos of himself playing with toys, he then shuts off the video and goes to get those toys and will play. Wow. So I'm not saying use a video to replace the play, but use it as a um, a starter, if you will. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, when appropriate, you know what, incorporate music. If you're not watching your television, shut it off. It doesn't need to be background noise. Um, that's that actually quite toy- interesting. Yeah, I was Go ahead, say, I'm quite, sorry. It's actually quite interfering that background TV noise um, yeah. interferes with a child's ability to think while they're playing, and that's a way to practice their own language in their head and problem mm-hmm. solve and think critically. Um, so yes, if um, turning off that television is a beautiful thing, and letting them play and think and hear themselves think, etc. So all right, I, just I mean, I can also there, tell so. you there. No, it's true. I mean, there have been instances mm-hmm. where my son was playing and he said something to me and I couldn't hear him because the back, the football game was on. 
and no one yeah. was watching the football game. So, mm-hmm. you know, I actually took a step back and said, this is silly. We need to shut this TV off. Mm-hmm. You know? Um, another suggestion I always have to parents is rotate the toy collection. Um, a suggestion I have, and when you're, if and when you do decide to do this, is to do it not in the presence of the child. <laughs> because I find yes. when I'm trying to rotate the toys, um, it becomes problematic that you're moving the child's toys. The, toy may, the child may not understand that maybe you're rotating. They might think you're taking them, and then it becomes a very stressful situation. Um, but the good thing about rotating toys is that when you are moving toys in and out of rotation, it rekindles interest in old toys. Yeah. Um, it's like, oh, I forgot I have that, and I do enjoy playing with that. You know? Yeah, and um, another thing that I think is important regarding rotating toys, so you're not presenting all their toys all the time, that you're giving them a no. small subset from which they can they can scan, they can select what they want, um, and then, right, when they're not present, put some away and put others in that repertoire that they have more easy access to. Um, that is very helpful. They, they don't have the planning and organization skills that adults have, and... Um, Helping, giving them a smaller subset will help, I think, keep the home clean a little bit better, too. <laughs> Could be oh, yeah, something definitely. nice. Um, being able to put things away. Um, and those are important skills um, to also how you're cleaning up and putting away. Um, maybe we could save that for another talk. But um, I just oh, wanted yeah, to jump absolutely. in there with that with that rotation sure. um, comment. So go ahead. Yeah, I just have one other comment I wanted to talk, you know, interject here in terms of um, fostering play skills is feel free to use non-traditional objects. Um, You know, use an eye mask, fold it up, and pretend it's a sandwich. Or take a business card and use it as a train ticket to get on the railroad or get on the subway. Um, You know, you don't need every single toy set for a child to play. A child will absolutely play. That's, That's their mission in life. Right. They're hardwired for it. They're oh, yeah, it's it. happening, whether you like it or not. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so since play is so important, uh, we we want to make sure that it is developing well because it affects really de- uh, development globally. What are some red flags um, that parents might see that might indicate they're not developing their play skills or other um general developmental skills aren't on target, what are some indications that there might be something um, problematic with their development? Right. Well, the first thing I'd like to say is that if you have a child between the ages of, let's say, two and three or two and four or even two and five, lack of sharing may not be an indicator of poor, poor play skills. That is something that develops over time, sometimes in conjunction with play, and sometimes not. <laughs> so, so just to make sure I'm clear, so just if they're between like two and five and they're not sharing, that's not necessarily um, because they have poor play skills. Exactly. Exactly. Okay. Um, there are always other factors. Able to share yet. Okay. Yeah, they just might not be able to share yet, you know, and okay. it's sometimes things like birth order affect that. You know, if you have a, a child who's, let's say, the baby of five and always like having to steal away a toy, He's not going to share in kindergarten as easily. Mm -hmm. Right. Right. Um, You know, just to give one example. Um, But that stated, parents should certainly be concerned under a few of these uh, circumstances that I would like to highlight. I have three points that are of concern to me, um, and they're not necessarily in any sequential order. A child does not need to demonstrate all three, um, but just some things to look for if you're concerned about your child not playing. First of all, if a child is not... Uh, demonstrating joint attention during play, um, that would be of concern for me. Um, Joint attention is a very fancy clinical term that really means the interaction between three um, bodies, okay? So the the child, the parent, and some sort of object of interest. So I always say it's a triadic activity. Mm -hmm. So during the process of joint attention, a child will look at his caregiver, look at a toy, then look back at his caregiver. Mm-hmm. Okay, that's, that sequence of events between the three bodies, as I said, is called joint attention. Um, the child is essentially showing 
um, or sharing some sort of mutual experience with this caregiver during these what they call joint attention periods. And most likely, when parents are engaged in joint attention, they tend to unknowingly label the item. So let's say um, an example would be the child um, looks at mom, looks at the ball, and then looks back at mom. Chances are the parent is going to say, mom is going to say, oh, you like the ball, you want the ball? Okay, I'll get you the ball. I Look, the ball bounces. So the mom just mm-hmm. said ball four times, right, or three times, and is essentially helping the child understand that that round, bouncy object that he looked at is a ball. Okay, so this interaction, while socially driven, also builds on a child's later vocabulary skills. Mm-hmm. So that's the first area of concern is the lack of joint attention. The second area of concern is play for an extended amount of time. I've already mentioned multiple times that, you know, as a parent, you get tired because kids really don't sustain attention. And that's all normal. That's all typical. If a child is observed to play for an extended amount of time without seeking assistance or seeking interaction in any way from any other person, either a sibling or an adult at home, I would be concerned. And the reason why is because as we talked about going through the Westby um, 10 stages of play is that even though play is and should be exploratory, as a child progresses, it becomes more socially driven, and that's the underpinning of play. Mm-hmm. Okay, so the first point is joint attention. The second is um, play for an extended amount of time, essentially in isolation. Um, A third and a very large concern for me is extreme rigidity in play. So when observing a child's play over multiple instances, which these instances could be over a day, over a few days, or over a few weeks, um, it's common that children do repeat certain threads. That's common. However, it's and so by threads you mean certain activities. I'm sorry, and by threads you mean they certain activities, the same game, so to speak. Yes, exactly. So the child may play kitchen a few times a day or a few times a week, and when playing kitchen, he may make that same cake and he may make that same pizza. That's okay. All right, because eventually they start adding more items to the pizza or making a different kind of cake and so on and so forth. But when we see play that is repeated with exactness, not embellished upon, um, no spontaneity interjected whatsoever, or if the child becomes upset if a parent attempts to scaffold their play, meaning build upon or elaborate, Mm -hmm. this becomes an area of concern for me. Um, Sometimes this rigidity can be random and it can be subtle. So just to give you an example, um, I once worked with a little boy who like to play with fruits and vegetables in a grocery basket. So, so far, that seems totally fine. And at first, it's, it seems, and, and the items were developmentally appropriate, and um, on the surface, it appeared to be typical. But on multiple observations, I came to notice that um, he would become obsessive with the plastic strawberries within the bunch, and that they all had to be on the 45-degree angle toward the south-facing window of the house. And if they weren't, he would become extremely upset to the point that he could not continue his play. That's a level of extreme rigidity that I'd like to refer to, as opposed to just repeating a sequence. Right. And it's that the fact that he got upset um, was the big red flag, that um, he couldn't be flexible enough to to tolerate that change. Right. Right. Okay. So then what do parents do if, if they are seeing some of this and they have a feeling in their gut that their child's, they're looking at their child's play skills and they're not feeling that they are on par with where they should be with maybe where their older siblings were at that age or their, their peers? Right, right. Well, the first step would be to schedule an evaluation through your, early, uh, your local, intervention, uh, local early intervention department. So... Um, I wouldn't be able to give a hard and fast number because early intervention services are guided by different jurisdictions in different states in the U.S. So I would start, I would suggest by starting with a phone call to the local Department of Mental Health within your county, and they would be able to guide you further in terms of how to obtain a free evaluation. Mm -hmm. Um, I always tell parents, if they're not sure, if they have 
some sort of a little itty-bitty concern, I tell them, you know what, even if it's a small concern, just err on the side of caution and pursue an evaluation. Sooner rather than later is always better. Yes, yes, yes. (laughs) Sooner is always better than later because if there is a problem, the earlier you intervene, the less intervention you need, generally speaking, over time. Right, Absolutely. and the later you wait, the bigger the problem can grow, and it becomes harder to mitigate. It becomes harder to to fix. And exactly, the, ga- the gap me, essentially widens. Yeah, and there's nothing like having an expert in a given discipline look at that child. If it's the play skills, you'd have a most likely a speech pathologist and or a psychologist, sometimes a developmental educator looking. If obviously if language, you'd want a speech pathologist. If it's motor. You'd want an occupational therapist or physical therapist, sensory, and you'd really like an occupational therapist. So, yeah, getting an evaluation with that expert in that particular discipline is um, sooner than later is, is really an important point. Yeah, and yeah. you know what? I always tell a parent that's not sure. No child uh, 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 that I know of has ever died. I, I always say this in in a funny <laughs> tone. I always say no child has ever died from an evaluation they may not have needed. Right. You know. So so let's just err on the side of caution. And if everything is okay, then that's a great day too. Yeah. And I think that peace of mind that mom and dad yeah, might absolutely. have is worth result it. of that. Um, yeah, it's important. absolutely we want, worth it. Happy parents make for happy kids, and you know, uh, you know, parents who are at ease and not anxious will will have an easier time of raising children who are at ease and not anxious. So, um, yeah, exactly. I'm a big fan, obviously, too, of of sooner rather than later, um, and getting that eval if if you have any concern. Um, so now um, I wanted to talk. We're actually starting to get toward the end of our talk today, and before we um, finished up, I wanted to have an opportunity for us to talk about the work that you do at Adelphi University. You have a wonderful um, lab, the Language Observation and Analysis Lab. Um, talk to us about your work there and actually how families might get in touch with you if they were interested in participating in your research that you do. Great. Well, thank you so much. Um, so, Teresa, what I'm doing right now is I'm conducting some research on how children um, who are typically developing and children with autism spectrum disorders are making word associations. Um, And essentially what I'm really concerned about um, is looking at vocabulary skills. So when presented with one word, does another word come to mind more readily or less readily? Um, Is maybe grammar a factor in how kids Mm -hmm. um, associate words or is perhaps frequency in a language um, a factor at all, and do kids pay attention to these factors or not? Um, So that's what I'm working on right now. I do hope in the future to certainly expand this work and include um, an element of play in my research, both in typically Mm -hmm. uh, developing children and children with language disorders. So yeah, by all means, I I would welcome the phone call. My phone number is 516-877-4855. And I'd be happy to speak with any parents. Great. And so I'm just going to repeat that number, which is 516-877-4855. And, Dana, what I can do, too, is put, if you'd like, I can put that number up on the website for the show and probably your email address or website. Um, And so you'd be looking for typically developing children um, to participate in your study and children who are on the autism spectrum. Yes. And what's the age what's the age range that you'd be looking for? Um well as of this moment right now I'm looking at um adolescents, so it's a little beyond um mm-hmm. the age range of our the focus of our talk today. But I am okay. hoping to um move backward in time and go toward younger children, so probably within the age range of let's say four to eight. Okay, great. So um, So like the later developing play skills, if you will. Great. All right. So that's four to eight year skill range of children who are typically developing or with um, oh, who are on the autism spectrum. And what's nice mm-hmm. is when parents participate in research like this, they learn a lot. They get some uh, free evaluations and feedback on how their children mm-hmm. are developing, which is always nice. And, and you're helping science, which helps the greater good altogether, which is really nice. 
Um, and yeah. as I said, yeah, I'll uh, go ahead. No, I was just going to say I always feel like that's my charge. You know, in, in our field is always to advance science and ultimately help help people. That's what we're yeah. here for. Exactly. Exactly. So the final bit of help that we always end the show with is the favorite advice that our experts have for families, and we call it the five fantastic facts for a family. So, Dana, before you leave us, can you tell us what your five favorite pieces of advice are for, for parents and caregivers? Yes, absolutely. I feel like this is pretty much um, a summary of everything we've talked about, but um, really, really quickly, the first fantastic fact is that children will play, period. Um, Whether they have physical objects or not, play is observed across culture, gender, and socioeconomic status, and we need to pay attention to them as they do so. The second fact is that um, play with toys and not only technology or perhaps thinking about instead of technology, is necessary. The third fact is that um, I always ask parents to get involved and follow their child's lead. Um, If your child asks you to join in, do so. If she wants your presence, just for purposes of demonstration, be there, be animated. This not only helps your child's play skills, but also strengthens that parent-child connection. The fourth point is that um, too many toys can be just as problematic as too few toys. So, again, just thinking about rotating those toys in and out. Increased access to toys will actually facilitate boredom and therefore weaken the value and the process of play. So um, we need to think about this a little bit. And then the fifth point, which um, we really haven't talked about at all today, um, but I, I wanted to mention a book caveat. I am really interested in literacy. I think it's so invaluable for our children as they grow um, but we have to also consider that books, we have to think about books um, and consider them sometimes as toys as well. And this is wonderful. However, some books are more like toys and less like books. So they may have, let's say, all the functions of a toy. They might be battery operated. They might be lit. They might be musical. Again, this is all good stuff as long as you're aware that this is not true book reading and rather play with a toy. And this toy happens to be encased in a collection of pages. So we just need to have a good understanding of books as toys and which elements of toyness they have, <laughs> which, again, we haven't really talked about too much, but it, it is a fantastic fact that I think parents need to walk away with. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. And some of the things we didn't get to talk about today were some of the questions that parents often have, and <clears throat> that regards a lot of the time, you know, well, what toys are good? How should I organize the toys and such? And we're looking, Dana and I, to <clears throat> excuse me, do a follow-up interview where we can bring you that information. Um, and and just the the point, this little book caveat you had, is a is a great one. So we'll look to do that. Talking about what toys people should consider buying, um, how you store them, and um, you know what toys might help children talk more or be more creative, et cetera. Um, but that is our talk for today. So, Dana, thank you so much for your time. Again, our guest oh, my is Dr. Pleasure. Dana <laughs> You got mm-hmm. it. It's Dr. Dana, Dr. Dana Battaglia from Adelphi University. And, um, again, thanking her for all her time and expertise, thanking the audience for tuning in. Audience members, as always, if you're interested in um, giving us suggestions for topics or if you have questions that you'd like us to answer on the show, or just give us general feedback. We welcome it all. And you can send an email to info at kidsatoz.com. That's info at kidsatoz.com. You can also follow us on Facebook. We have a Kids A to Z page. And if you're interested, too, I'm on Twitter at Dr. Teresa. So that's, again, on Twitter at Dr. Teresa if you'd like to follow us there, too. But having said that, that's our show for today. And I hope everyone has a great rest of their day.
It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.